Let's take you back to 2001. We've just had the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York and the UK and all its army bases are on high alert. Jeff Gray was 17. He was from Hackney in East London and he was serving at Deep Cut Army Barracks in Surrey. He was a trainee soldier and he died of two gunshot wounds to the head. Was Jeff shot by another recruit? Was he killed by an unknown attacker? Did he take his own life? More than 17 years after he died, his family is learning the truth about what happened in his final moments. This is the third case to be brought to Fresh Inquest following the deaths of the so-called Deep Cut Four. Private Sean Benton, Private Cheryl James and Private James Collinson, whose family is yet to secure a new inquest, all died within a six-year period. John Cooper QC is representing the Gray family, Jeff's mum Diane and dad Jeff Senior. I'm Kyle Lark and along with fellow journalist Barry Keevans, we'll be bringing you all the latest from the inquest into Private Gray's death. We'll bring you the highs and lows from court each week. We'll help you understand what's happening and who the key players are. We'll hear about underage soldiers drinking alcohol, security incursions on the camp and an anonymous letter sent to the family's legal team in the final weeks of preparation. And we'll hear much, much more. The inquest is expected to last for more than six weeks at Woking Coroner's Court. We'll be there every step of the way. This is Deep Cut, the inquest. Well, Barry, it's been a while since uh, we've last caught up. Um, essentially, since then, all of the evidence has now finished. All of the planned for witnesses have, have given their statements into court. Uh, there are a couple more days in court just to, to wrap things up um, before the conclusions come back uh, in several weeks' time. We'll talk about that in a moment. Just bring us a little bit more up to date, though, in terms of what's happened since we last spoke. Well, it's been quite a lot. I think now we're in a position to do an overview of, of how it's gone and what what might be likely outcomes now and who the main players have been and how the evidence has gone since we've, mm. we've heard more or less everything now. Yeah, so what have been the standout moments for you throughout the inquest? Probably Bridget Dolan taking apart the police investigation was pretty standout. A lot of the witnesses have been fairly well taken apart as well. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of this kind of process is about getting to the... Well, the whole NQS process is about getting to the heart of the story, about getting to yeah. getting to the truth. So there is an awful lot of detail, and people's stories are examined very closely, probably more closely than they have been in the past. Well, obviously more closely than they have been in the past. It's a different thing speaking to people on a personal level and then speaking to people in a courtroom. It's a whole different experience and uh, people react to it different ways. Have there been many inconsistencies? Have there been people, I mean, obviously there is the, the lapse of time since all this happened, um, but have there been inconsistencies in people's stories? Have people changed their stories? Have people remembered things quite differently to how they remembered them at the time? What have been the kind of the big changes when people have been giving evidence? A lot of people, their, their story will change over time anyway and just in the retelling of it, you know, whenever you're telling a, a story to somebody, if you've told it more than once then you refine it and you, you pair it back or you, or you embellish it or, mm. you know, if you're just telling an anecdote. If you're giving evidence then this is what I mean about how it's a different way of of telling your story because you will be because every detail will be picked over so you'll have to come up with reasons why you think what you do and not everybody will have examined their own memory in that kind of detail anytime so that can be a difficult experience for people but it's you know it's not uncommon for, for, for things to change over time 
and it's certainly mm. not uncommon for people to for their memories to fade. But what is always brought out in 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 this kind of process is if your story has been consistent. So there are kind of main points to each individual's account. If they stay the same over time, then that adds weight to their story. It gives you a more coherent and more credible account. If your account, if your if your version of what has happened changes over time, then it generally makes you appear less reliable. Yeah. And in terms of uh, obviously sort of watching uh, the whole inquest play out in court, what has been the family's strategy or the strategy of their legal team uh, in in the approach to the inquest? I mean, ultimately, it's about getting to the truth of of, of what happened to Jeff, isn't it? But uh, but in terms of how the 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 legal team have have approached getting to that point, have you seen maybe a different approach than has been seen in in the other deep cut inquests that we've had to date? Have you seen things approached differently? I think that's definitely true. I mean, um, not least because. Uh, John Cooper QC and uh, the family's legal team have been very transparent since the beginning. Their their case has always been, not their case, but their standpoint has always been that not only did Jeff not shoot himself, but that he was shot by somebody else. And they've they've been clear on that from the start, and that's mm. that's been their position. So, but what they haven't said, what they're not saying is that they know specifically who it was. So, so John Cooper's strategy throughout has been to pick holes in as much of the what little evidence there is, and to cast doubt on accepted uh, version of events. So he has been quite aggressive at times, at going after people who the family don't think are helping them to get to where they need to be. So their position has always been Jeff was shot by somebody else, but they can't say who. Their approach has been to, to pick everything apart, to show where there is no evidence or no no kind of backup for the theory that, that he did kill himself. So And this is always a really difficult process for any family to go through how have jeff senior and and diane held up in court because they have had to hear some very difficult troublesome evidence at times you know, they've, they've had to relive some emotional very difficult moments how have they held up they've both been very well prepared by their legal teams and and they've lived mm-hmm. with this for a long time so they there are very few surprises but as you say it's mm-hmm. not it, it, it's different when it's your own son so yeah, they've both they've both held up remarkably well, and they've both had their moments. Jeff Senior has a has a nice kind of scale of, <laughs> of um, he measures he measures his day by how angry he feels at the end of each session. So and Diane is uh, is incredibly stoic, but it's it, you know the toughest day for Diane I think was when when we had Craig Denneman who was taken through the, the lack of uh, investigation by the police. And for those who, who aren't familiar with who he is, just a recap on, on who he is. He was head of crime for uh, Sally Police. And, yeah, she came out of that one and and just, she was upset. And she said to me that, you know, there never was an investigation. We can go into that later, I think. But they've had to hear awful things about the kind of spread of debris that was, that was left behind and, you know, other things that were found... You know, a year later, and you know they've had to relive going to the 
they mortuary it for me and you know, going through the identifying his body after post-mortem as well. You know, the other families have had to go through all this as well, but it's a harrowing thing to watch, never mind for it to be your family. And obviously the key purpose of this inquest is about finding out what happened to Jeff, but the family are concerned. They're, they're also, there is an, sort of an external focus in a sense um, in, in, in terms of how other young soldiers have been treated and, and are being treated and, and, and what impact life in the military has had on them, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, Jeff said to me that they're, you know, they're robust, they can handle this, but, you know, he was worried that the other young soldiers were walking past the scene every day. Uh, and as I say, there was still evidence of what had gone on there, so they, they were seeing that every day. Jeff and uh, Diana are pretty remarkable people, I think. And they were they were much more, they were concerned about the impact it was going to have or had had on uh, on the other people who were around. Um, and again, we've seen and that's that's quite visible in court sometimes, isn't it, with witnesses that you can see that there is that lasting impact, quite understandably. So, but there is that that lasting impact that this has had on on their lives, not least because many of them were young at the time but it, you know they, they've carried this with them for 20 years as well mental health considerations are, are much more prominent now so we you know it, it's not attitudes have changed but yeah you do see the fallout of what's happened mm. and in terms of the, the funeral that has you know that has come up a, a few times we've talked about that previously um particularly from jeff's dad's perspective jeff senior um and things that were said to him at the funeral and, and things that happened at the funeral but the funeral that that's not the only time that, that Jeff's funeral has, has come up in the inquest is it? No I mean it's not it's not actually part of the inquest it's not in scope so it's not been gone into in, in a great deal of detail but um, we do know that somebody who made comments to Jeff Senior about about how he could be one of them next and um, now regrets saying that so you know there's it's another one of these things where the investigation of these things and the, and the examination of, of what's going on has to be thorough at the time. And that's the lesson that we learn over and over and over again. You don't make assumptions early on and you investigate properly. And retain evidence and make sure that it is forensically examined. You know, one of the key things that, you know, we've, we've been aware from, of, of, kind of from the start really, is, is that uh, this search that took place um, on the night apparently missed Jeff's body initially. What more have we heard about any potential explanation for how that could possibly have happened? Well, that's another one where we've had, we've had conflicting accounts. That's been one of the hardest bits, I think, for the for the family to hear because you know, there's been one one person who's fairly prominent in the inquest and in, the, in, in what's been leading up to it. His account has not been, as we were discussing earlier, his account hasn't been particularly consistent. You know, his version of events and his kind of explanations and theories have caused an awful lot of uh, very difficult sleepless nights for Jeff and Diane because the body not being found right away really happened because, because they weren't there to look for it. They did search, but they just didn't search that bit. You know, I don't think anybody would be really overly critical of anybody for just missing it if it stopped there. But, you know, the uh, Corporal Filmer's um, version doesn't tally up with the other people who were on the search. 
that's been one of the main focuses of uh, mm. one of the main points in the inquest because and in terms of how I mean we've we've talked about John Cooper QC how have the other legal teams been in court because obviously I haven't been there for the last few weeks um, so in terms of how relationships played out in court how have you know how have they approached the evidence obviously there's been representations for the MOD and for Surrey police as well um how have they taken their witnesses through the various parts of evidence to I was going to say defend their various positions but it's maybe not quite the right word to use but to you know to to bring out the aspects of how the army handled things at the time and how the police handled things at the time if they had have gone if they had have been at the place where he says they were they would have literally mm. tripped over him and there's nothing really to suggest that the body was moved after and nobody was there looking for him until after they'd heard the gunshots and there weren't any more gunshots after that so it's uh, again if it had been examined properly at the start then we wouldn't be here so Barry now that we've heard all of the evidence um like I say there's a there's a there's a tiny bit more to take take place in court but but the the pretty much all of the evidence has has been heard um talk us through who the main players in the story let's just kind of recap and just sort of go back to um who are the 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 key players within the private jeff gray story well if we take craig denham first who's who was uh head of cid uh, head of crime for Surrey police he had a, a a full day in the witness box and and it was no i wouldn't have said his his greatest day as a policeman um He's now retired, obviously retired as, I think, Chief Constable or Assistant Chief Constable of Hampshire Police. He's not been a policeman for a while, but he was head of uh, CID for Surrey when Jeff was killed. And he was in the witness box on the same day that Julian Assange was hauled out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And uh, I just thought it was interesting that, that one of... Uh, Mr. Denham's main kind of justifications was the, the kind of Donald Rumsfeld defence, where he said that you know there were things that they knew and things that they didn't know and things that they knew that they didn't know and things that they didn't know that they didn't know. Which is you know that's what Donald Rumsfeld said about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So it was it's an interesting approach. I just thought it was not it was just a, a, a ironic thing to say on on the day that. Yeah, Assange just dragged out of the embassy. So, was was there any apology for the apparent lack of proper investigation? No, um, he didn't apologise, and uh, the army haven't apologised either. So, mm. uh, not in court. I mean, you know, mm. there have been various statements, and and of, of, I'm sure they have apologised, and I'm sure Saudi police have apologised as well. But the point is, they, they didn't do it in court, which has been what has happened the, the previous two times so it was the first thing that they, they, they all did the first two times um, although actually there was no Surrey police involvement in Sean Benton's inquest at all as I remember um, but I'm sure they must have apologised at Cheryl's I'm sure they would have done uh, and the army did it both but I suppose then we can talk about the army as well because the, the police and the army are still arguing over I don't want really to say you know it's a tough word to use but they are arguing, still arguing in court over whose fault all this is and 
you know, they're, they're playing past the parcel with an important an important feature of the of what happens immediately after. In terms of whose jurisdiction it is who to secure the scene, to conduct the investigation, to take witness statements, to do the forensic examinations, to do all of those things that should be done in the immediate aftermath of, of such an event. It's the argument over primacy, over who should have taken control. I mean, if you imagine it's like if you imagine the the, the big bang theory of the, of the formation of the universe, right? So we're all here now and billions of years ago there was this event and everything that's here now is formed immediately after the event and very very quickly after the event and everything that we see now is a consequence of that so immediately after Jeff's body is found has set you know what happens immediately after that is set in train everything that's happened up to now the decisions that are made at immediately at the time it's destiny that, that you end up here one decision made right at the start influences everything that happens after and sets the the path for everything that happens after the decision about who takes primacy that starts off a, a train of a chain of events it's you know the, a chain reaction if you want they're still arguing now over who had primacy who should have done what it's 17 odd years later and but the truth is sorry please know that it should have been them who took charge of the investigation and followed through and they knew at the time that it was that it should have been them and they just didn't because of decisions that were made at the time sorry please no they don't have they know that they should have done it and you know Craig Denham was was trying to justify them not doing it by saying that there was confusion over MOD documents and what they meant and all that but the reality is the Home Office sets out very clearly who should be taking charge of investigations of suspicious or sudden deaths in the UK Mm. and it's the police and they knew that full well leading on from that the way way things should run is the police investigate if there's not going to be a criminal prosecution then the coroner takes over and that can take however long it takes but in this case it took a matter of minutes the police decided they weren't going to get involved and there was a post-mortem examination was done the same day and the whole thing was handed over to the coroner within minutes now that is down to his masters and the then coroner michael burgess who was the coroner in charge of all four um, who went on to become the royal coroner who was in charge of the inquest into the death of Diana and Dodie Fire. So they make the decision very early on as well that they don't need a full forensic um, post-mortem. So even though they've got a home office pathologist on hand to do it, they go ahead with the standard post-mortem, which took less than half an hour. You've got somebody who's been shot twice in the head, uh, mm. base, and... He's the third one that's been shot. It's difficult to understand how that decision could possibly have been made at the time, isn't it? With this distance of time, it, it, I mean, it, but it is just impossible even as a, as a layman to understand how that decision could have been made. You know, when you get experts in to, to, to talk about it, they're just astonished as well. So right away you've got, the, you've got more or less no police investigation whatsoever and a fairly swift coronial investigation, which... Uh, is all over more or less the same day and the only people that come out of it with any credit at all are the one SIB, one army the SIB is kind of army equivalent of CID and she did her best and pushed Surrey police as well thinking that they were in charge of this 
I mean, she knew that they were supposed to be in charge of her, and they just kind of paid lip service and fobbed her off, I think. But she's the only one that ever tried to do anything. I mean, she went back to, to interview people who had been missed by, again, the lack of investigation by the police. You know, Bridget Dolan has been, Bridget Dolan QC has been, uh, again, an extremely important figure in this in this interest. Well, I was just going to come on to her, yeah. So in, in terms of, you know, sort of talking about the police and the army, I mean, one of the one of the most important figures in, in the courtroom is, is Bridget John Dolan QC, um, who is, for those who don't know the process, who is sort of doing the initial questioning, taking people through their statements, asking them various questions in relation to that, asking them to explain further details uh, where required before handing across to... John Cooper QC or the MOD or Surrey Police to the other legal teams within. So she's asking all of the questions on behalf of the coroner. Now, in terms of what, what you've dubbed Dolan's Dozen, just <laughs> tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, people will be used to kind of courtroom dramas and, and seeing what you know, seeing what goes on in court. And, and if you're not familiar with, it, with an inquest, it's a, it, the whole setup is different. So in, in a trial, you have one side versus the other at an inquest everybody is supposed to be working towards the same goal. So anyone who's important to that can be represented. The inquest is represented as well in in shape of, of, of Bridget. So she she, ta- she takes the first go at, at witnesses and then everybody else gets a chance to, to ask questions again after that. But a lot of the investigative work is done by the coroner's officers and ultimately that kind of all is, is uh, filtered through Bridget as well. So when Craig Denham was in for his his day in the box, she just took him apart. I mean, she mm. picked out uh, a dozen points where the where the police had, had failed to do their jobs. If you look on the website, it's all there. I mean, I've written, I've, I've written all that. <laughs> There's a lot of detail. Yeah, if people want to go and read back exactly what's happened at various points, it's all there. I can't go into as much detail uh, as I as as I would like, even in the, even in in the website, even in the written part of what I'm doing, because it's just it's too much. You know, there's mm. uh, I'm trying, I do try and keep it to a kind of readable length, so. which is difficult after some days in court. Easier on others, but kind of writing to a daily deadline as well, so that mm. um, there's only so many hours in the day. But yeah, Bridget really did give him a good going over. Came up with with a dozen failings and. They were all pretty obvious. I mean, and he, he didn't really have anything to say about any of them. Yeah, because you would hope against hope that, that that things were done properly for your child if this had happened to them. So yeah. Now, in terms of the experts, obviously, you know, there's been a whole broad range of, of witnesses. Um, you know, from the camp, from you know, who were serving alongside, who were friends of Jeff's, um, from sorry, police officer. But in terms of the actual, uh, the sort of professional experts that have been brought in for the inquest, um, forensics, ballistics, just what what have been the highlights from from that expert witness accounts that we've heard? Uh, well, Jack Green was 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 really good. He's a forensic expert from um, Northern Ireland who was, I'd imagine, kept fairly busy during the Troubles and knows his stuff inside out, was busy during the Troubles, um, mm-hmm. has seen more gunshots than uh, than most, I would have thought, and was in a very good position to say, again, going back over what Bridget was saying, you know, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And I think Bridget was very strong on what you should do, 
and he was very strong on what you shouldn't do. You know, Bridget was very strong on the 12 steps that she thought that the police should have taken. And Jack Crane was very strong on the one thing that they definitely shouldn't do, which is make assumptions. But he was very strong on that. You just don't assume anything. And not to rule things out. So, you know, you don't rule out any possibility that early on. Because, again, what I was saying before about, about my Big Bang Theory, that he... Once you start to make assumptions, once you start to make decisions, then it sets off a chain of events that you can't then go back and change. And in terms of, there have there have been other experts as well in court. Just sort of talk us sort of briefly through through some of the highlights of those. Well, the other main one, I suppose, is, is um, psychologist or psychiatric expert who, again, is working from a pretty difficult place, a, 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 you know, a major disadvantage in that he never met anybody, he didn't get a chance to meet Jeff, he didn't get a chance to meet any of the people who knew him, apart from mum and dad, um, he didn't get a chance to interview anybody, which is what you would base your opinions on. It's more about what he didn't get a chance to do than, than what he did get a chance to do, so he's working from the opposite end of the of the telescope, you know, he's starting from the idea that, that Jeff did shoot himself. And then he's working back from there to come up with reasons why that might happen. Fairly odd way round, I think. I mean, you know, if we, if we, as we were saying before about an inquest about what it is that you, everyone works toward finding out what actually happened. If you're starting yeah. from from the point of view that you that you accept one version of events from a pretty big assumption, yeah, from from one viewpoint. Lewis Appleby is. Um, He's a professor, he's an extremely eminent man, he's, you know, he's got a reputation, he's got a big man in his field, but his field is suicide, so he's, he's he investigates suicide. And he was the only expert, only uh, mental health expert that was asked to give an opinion, you know, so if you're calling in a suicide expert, then you know, you're asking him to... To find evidence that fits that theory, essentially. And without having, well, without having any access to, to, to people who were who were there. You know, he had mm. to go on the paperwork that he had and a fairly brief meeting with, with mum and dad that didn't go very well because mm. I think Jeff and Diane were fairly vocal about that as well and they're fairly fairly clear that they don't think that this is the way to go about this, you know. They don't think mm-hmm. they, you know, they think if you're getting a suicide expert in then You're not approaching things with a with an open mind. If you've got a hammer all your problems start to look like nails. And I mean, he had to admit himself that, that that he probably didn't have very much to go on. And I mean, one of the things that he was kind of driving at was that because it was so unlikely, because there was so little to suggest that Jeff was in any way interested in self-harming or or going any further, than that, because there was really literally nothing there to suggest that, that made it more likely that he would kill himself. Which is a hard mm. thought to keep in your head, but. That was mm. kind of what he was saying that the that because it was so unlikely that made it more likely. Which is hard, having not heard his evidence. So that that is a hard idea to get your head around. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's an eminent man. He's an expert. He's a professor. He's mm. he's you know, mm. this is what he does for for a living, and he's been involved in some very high profile cases before, uh, some that I've done actually, and uh, you know, he's not. You can't dismiss people because you don't like what they say. So mm-hmm. you have to hear him out, but he has to accept as well, and has, did accept in court that he didn't have a complete picture, and mm. didn't have 
even that much to go on, really. And, of course, also, he won't have heard the evidence from other people, even within court, across uh, across the last few weeks. So it's not even as though any opinions or expert opinion will have been altered, adapted or informed by what has even been said in court, you know, days or a couple of weeks before he was giving his evidence, is there? So it's what he's been given previously to make his findings on, and then that that's that's where he's at with it, isn't it? So he did get a bit of an update, and he did kind of alter his, his position a, a little bit, but not much. I mean, it's it's a hard one to, to maintain, I think. It's a hard position to maintain, because there isn't anything there to suggest that... that there was any suicidal thought at all. I mean, to be honest, everything points to exactly the opposite. Everything's, everything points to... I mean, even in the, the seconds before the gunshots are heard, he's talking to people about his future and about what he's going to be doing you know, at the end of that week. You know, it's not... The, the, there really isn't anything that anybody said that, that carries any weight or adds any, you know to an idea that he might have been thinking about shooting himself. I mean, there's a, there are a couple of things that are really vague and really out there. And, I mean, there's one guy in particular who says that, well, he told me that night that he was going to go and shoot himself. You know, the, the, again, this is this is part of the of the professor's theory as well, that, that because he said that to somebody on the night and then it happens, that's more than a coincidence. Um, which, you know, again... It, it, that's that, that would seem like a reasonable thing to say, and, I, and I'm 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 not trying. To, I'm not saying that, that like, you know. I'm saying you, you you can't dismiss people because you don't like everything that they say. So you so it is a reasonable mm. thing to say. But weighed against literally everything else, it's not particularly strong. Mm. I don't. Now, just in terms of what happens now. There is a little bit more to be heard in court in terms of just wrapping the final elements of the inquest up and hearing the the final submissions from the legal teams. What, and the brigadier is back, what happens next? I would guess the brigadier is in on Thursday and we have legal submissions on Friday. And then we have a break until, I think it's kind of mid-late June, when we'll hear conclusions from Peter Rook. So it's a, it's, it's a good couple of months, understandably, to go away and consider all the evidence that's been heard and then uh, back for the conclusions. And uh, As far as what, what, we, like, what we would expect from the conclusions now, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, I, mean I would have thought if you were... I would have thought that the, the appearance of each, each of the four would be going into this process hoping that they would get a different verdict from what they mm. from you know a, a, a different yeah. conclusion from the verdict that they had because in between times it's it's changed from inquests ending in a verdict to inquests ending in a conclusion so I would have thought that if you were one of the parents going into this you would expect or you'd be hoping that your conclusion would be diff- different to mm. the original verdict um, with Cheryl it wasn't um, mm. with Sean it wasn't mm. and I think with Jeff, I think they're they're hoping, or their the expectation now is that what they're really hoping to do is make sure it stays the same. Because I don't think it's going to go completely the the other way, and the coroner's going to say that somebody else did it. At the moment, the the verdict in the original inquest was open. So if it goes the other way, and that the coroner concludes that he did shoot himself, then. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know that the family aren't going to be happy with that if it happens. No, yeah. It's difficult to imagine how they might take that verdict, but that conclusion, sorry. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess it is just a, a, a big waiting game for them in particular, for everybody now for, for the next couple of months, isn't it? To just put their trust in the process, know that, you know, they've heard and the coroner has heard as much evidence as is possible at this point. And oh yeah, for them, it is, it's, it's just a trust in that process and a trust that, that all of that has been considered when, when he comes back in June. Which I don't think they really have anymore. I mean, I, and uh, I don't think they've had any trust in the in process for a long time, you know, and with good reason. Because everybody's let them down all the way along. So, you know, I don't, I, you know, they've both said as much that they don't really have any faith in, in, in the system anymore. And, you know, I don't, I honestly don't blame them. But, um, I mean, while we're talking about scientific theories, the, the, the other one is, is, is uh, you know, what, whatever the most likely explanation is, is probably the right one, you know. It's the, and if you work from that, then, I don't know, the coroner's going to have a difficult time. I don't know. I just uh, there, but uh, but I mean, you know, there there have been surprises in the other inquests. Um so it, it is, you know, even in your position having heard, you know, almost every word of evidence, it is difficult to to second guess how yeah, the end result, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it just uh, again it comes back to the fact that, that really nothing was done at all at the time. There was no investigation, so you got nothing to go on. Really, it's as stark as that. You know, there was no investigation. So, so, so it is. So it is a difficult job. Seventeen odd years later, to conclude what happened without that investigation and without that evidence gathered at the time, isn't it? So, yeah, it feels like it feels like we're going round in ever decreasing circles. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, as I said before, we're in a room full of, of experienced, highly qualified professional people. And certainly, Bridget Dolan takes it as a as a professional slight that that, that you know, the, the original investigation was was more or less non-existent. That's really what we what we're faced with again is that the third time round, still nobody did anything. You know, well, hopefully we'll find out soon if we're going to go and do all this again for the fourth time. And I'm 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 guessing it's it's probably fair to say that that that, that is likely that the fourth inquest is. Is going to go ahead in light of the fact that the other three have. I, I honestly don't know, and I, I, I wouldn't like to be, uh, I wouldn't like to be committed on that at all because I, I really don't know. Liberty have taken an interest in this one because they want to see how it's been progressing. Um, they represented the, the uh, James and Benton families, and they are, they represent the Collinsons as well, who would be the fourth inquest if there was one. But it's nowhere near, nowhere near time to say if there is going to be a fourth one or not. But um, and I, I certainly wouldn't want to be committed to that at all. Anyway, for now, let's we'll wrap this up, and we will be back once the conclusions have been delivered, if not before. We'll see how things go. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's likely to be developments between now and then. There's always something comes up along the way. Um, we the number of times we kind of sat there and thought that. We knew where things were going, and then there's, there's suddenly been a kink in the track, and things have changed slightly. Well, you know, there's a, there's a new police investigation going on. Yeah, there are plenty of other things 
kind of that we should hear about between now and conclusions hopefully well we will be updating the podcast weekly you can subscribe on iTunes and on all of the main podcast platforms we'll be discussing the main points of evidence from the past week and we are of course interested in hearing from you if you served at Deep Cut if you knew Private Jeff Gray do follow us to keep up to date on all of the main points of evidence from Woking Coroner's Court here and on Twitter Deep Cut The Inquest